Hello, welcome back to the Quacked Out Podcast. I am Charlie, if you're even able to hear this terrible voice, joined by Reed, who was in attendance. Uh, we both were for this Oregon win over Oregon State. Reed, initial thoughts on the win? Um, well, for me, it was just awesome to actually be there, be there for the seniors. Uh, and yeah, it was just a, it was a great game, I thought. Um, I think we're kind of ready to, to head into a real war against you against Utah in this in this conference title game so for me I felt like this was a perfect kind of celebration of what I thought was a was a fun season uh, had its ups and downs obviously but it felt like just a celebratory day in Autzen uh, a game that Oregon pretty much controlled um, for its entirety <laughs> you know I mean yeah I mean there was the onside kick and it got a hairy for a second there but uh, in retrospect, especially, Ducks were in control, uh, put together a good performance. A.B. played well, like we kind of hoped, just kind of to send him off after all the discussion around that. Um, yeah, it was, it was just a, it was everything I could ask for from this game, honestly. How did you feel? I felt great about it. Uh, just I, I second everything you said, as usual. Um, <laughs> we'll dive into it a little, well, not a little bit, a lot throughout this episode. Again, apologies for the voice. I was screaming a lot um, before, during, and after the game. I heard you slip up initially there. You almost said USC. Uh, we will <laughs> definitely touch on that news uh, regarding Lincoln Riley and USC's new hire a little bit later, as we always do. Um, check out scoopduck.com, as always. Again, uh, there's some great recruiting stuff. You put out a piece, read about Darius Clemens, right? Um, and yep. that can transition us into what was a very important weekend, um, possibly the most important weekend of the actual football season in terms of recruiting. Is that right? Yeah, this was this was a pretty massive recruiting weekend. Uh, you had a ton of guys on campus, a um, bunch of commits, Mel's, Halton, Roberts, Andre Dollar, the tight end, uh, Dave Ayuli. And then some of the biggest targets still left out there in, in 2022. Cyrus Moss, obviously a huge target. Uh, Connor Lee, a really big target, especially after um, Percy Lewis, the JUCO tackle, decommitted from this 2022 class. Kind of an opening there. And Connor Lee's a guy who's going to take it probably until February. Um, so Oregon has a chance to really push there. Um, I mentioned Moss, obviously, big-time edge rusher. Um, Darius Clemens, in-state wide receiver, as you mentioned, the one who I have the piece on. Um, that uh, interview was done by Jonathan, so shout-out to him as well. Um, and Earl Little Jr., a really good uh, defensive back, also in 2022. Um, and then some other other guys from, from 23 and beyond that, that you guys can check out that list over on Scoop Duck. But... It was an absolutely huge recruiting weekend, um, and so in that regard, it was a good time for the Ducks to really deliver what was, you know, uh, one of their best games of the season, I felt like. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's dive into it now, like kind of how did this happen? For me, um, without a rewatch and just kind of looking at highlights after the game, after being there and not exactly taking notes while I was in the student section, <laughs> um, it kind of boiled down to like good AB is a win. You know, when Anthony Brown is good, the Ducks win. Uh, Probably fair. Can you say anything to get me off of that pedestal? <laughs> well, 
I think that's I think that's totally true. Um, and but I think more than that too. I think that um, well, there's the you know it, it depends on the competition level. I think you know Josh Pate uh, with Late Kick talks about the freeze point a lot uh, in terms of you know really elite offenses. Sometimes if a secondary isn't to a certain level, then they have no shot of stopping them. I don't think, you know, Oregon isn't quite that elite, but I think with Anthony Brown, it's like if, if he's playing a certain level of competition uh, and our wide receivers are able to get open against them, he's going to look really good. Uh, and then when he plays teams that are pretty solid in the secondary, it, he becomes a lot more limited as a passer, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, w- I wasn't shocked by the performance from Brown uh, and – we've said it, you know, he's, he's had up and down games, um, that have kind of followed obviously as, as it does, uh, (laughs) the level of competition that he's playing against. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but we, we projected this a little bit, you know, I, I talked about how I thought this Beaver's secondary and defense look kind of similar to Colorado's, uh, just in terms of raw talent. Um, and Colorado was a game where Oregon basically got whatever they wanted on offense. Uh, mm-hmm. And this game pretty much followed that same script. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, we can dive into a drive-by-drive if you want. I don't know if we need to because every kind of, everyone kind of knows what went down. But uh, like you said, we got it done on the ground and in the air. I want to start with wide receivers because that's what you've mentioned already. Brown uh, threw 28 passes, completed 23 of them. 275 isn't a great number, but, I mean, two touchdowns, no turnovers. Uh, that's exactly what, he, what we need to see from Brown. I thought it was interesting, too, that uh, out of the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 different, or maybe that's 8 different receivers he used, I think it's 7, um, he only threw incompletions to two of them, uh, 3 to Chris Hudson and 2 to Troy Franklin. And obviously those guys ended up having catches as well throughout the game. Um, Devin Williams had maybe the game of the season from any wide receiver on the Ducks roster, maybe other than his own performance earlier against like Cal or uh, Colorado. 110 yards on six catches and a touchdown. Obviously, that 50 yard bomb in the second quarter, maybe his first quarter, can't remember. Uh, Chris Hudson also had that touchdown catch. He was great. Seven catches, 82 yards. Travis Dye had a lot of catches as well. Um, and I mentioned Franklin, Thornton got one too. It just seemed like we were getting whatever we needed on offense, whether it was in the ground, on the ground or in the air. Um, and again, that we finally saw some explosive passing. I think people were calling Brown's throw to Williams like kind of the best maybe that we've seen all year from him. Do you think that's fair? Probably, probably. I mean, he's had some other good ones, but um, I don't know if he's quite hit a shot over the top like that this year so I think that was that was pretty awesome yeah and I mean again just as as much as I'm gassing up the passing game like we got important runs when we needed them I'm looking through the the play chart right here and like a lot of third and especially I mean the first fourth down of the game for the Ducks fourth and one Travis Dye gets the 20-yard touchdown um there's a third down where Brown gets the he keeps it for like seven or eight yards in a first down um, later in the game. We have Byron Cardwell kind of seal the deal. I think that was sort of the final, final nail in the coffin, um, getting his first down run that almost, and he almost ended up scoring off of, uh, a lot of people, yeah. 
including us to some extent, but a lot of people were sort of expecting Oregon State to be able to do what Utah did against Oregon, which was essentially control the line of scrimmage um, and not let, you know, this was the sort of game where the team that rushes more or at least uh, more successfully from a percentage standpoint was probably going to win. But instead of the Beavers, it was Oregon going uh, 59% success rate when rushing uh, for 24 successful runs. That will win you this game against the Beavers. Um, And again, when you rush the ball, I think it was, yeah, 59% of the time on your 69 plays from scrimmage, you're going to be fine. Um, especially when those two guys are Travis Dye and Byron Cardwell. And A.B., of course, had you know a decent night running, too, right. as he usually does. Um, does this give you any sort of hope heading into Utah that we can do this, or is, am I rushing it too much? Well, I, I think I feel kind of similarly to, um, to how I did before this game, even. Uh, I think you look at the line for Utah. I know it opened at three. I haven't checked in in a few hours. Um, Three-point favorites for Utah, obviously. But, I mean, you know, I, I I even said after the game, I think, that, you know, it was a night at Utah that was just their night. Uh, and credit to them for that 100%. But, you know, I, those teams are not 30 points apart. Obviously, we knew that, um, that the spread wasn't going to be Utah minus 30. But I think um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I definitely have some confidence that Oregon can do it. I think it's about starting hot, uh, starting fast. I think that not being in a true road environment might help that, although I am kind of suspicious as to how uh, Utah dominant Las Vegas will be. I think it, it might be in, in their favor. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Beavers have a great rushing attack, obviously, and Oregon contained that, um, for the most part, but, you know, it was kind of weird because, uh, I mean, you talk about like padlock stats, um, Mm -hmm. that, that Josh Pate does again, where it's kind of, if you had to look at a stat from the, after the game, uh, and you hadn't seen anything yet, it would reveal the outcome. Uh, more than anything that's, you know, yardage or touchdowns or whatever, just B.J. Baylor having 13 carries kind of tells the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yes, he, he averaged 4.5 on those, which isn't bad. Uh, but it kind of shows just they, because Oregon jumped on this game early, they forced Oregon State to play out of their style, out of their comfort zone, on the road, which they already have struggled with. Uh, and they just were never able to really get their footing under them. They tried to do, you know, their best best Utah Brant Keithy uh, impression with Luke Musgrave <laughs> catching balls, and and that had some success against Oregon. But I mean, overall, it was pretty clear that Oregon State this game, you know, they never really were able to settle in until it was too late, and they tried to make a little run to start the fourth quarter. Um, so yeah. yeah yeah uh the other thing i want to mention <clears throat> despite 10 penalties which was ugly um like you said 85 total rush yards for oregon state is not going to get it done for them um especially when baylor is only getting 59 yards uh average yards for com- per completion though for the beavers 12.3 and they were getting it i mean they were kind of getting whatever they needed through the air uh at some points chance nolan 25 of 39 for 300 yards, 
Uh, he had the pick at the end of the half, which, I mean, it's, it's effectively an incompletion. Um, but, I mean, that was a little bit concerning, especially when Mikhail Wright went down. And it seemed pretty obvious that the mm-hmm. Beavers were targeting one Dante Manning, uh, a guy who obviously we've hyped up in the past because of his recruiting ranking and things like that. Do you see this as, a, again, I want to frame this in terms of, like, what can happen in the next game. Like, do you think that's something Utah can exploit? Or, I mean, we saw the injury report after the game. Like, hopefully Sewell and Wright will both be fine, so maybe it's not as big of a deal. But, I don't know. That was a little bit concerning for me. And, again, just... I think you definitely want Sewell and Wright back. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) But, I mean, overall, I think Oregon fans are most frustrated by, like, simply if you look at the box score, what's the first thing you see, right? Oregon State scores 20 points in the fourth quarter. That shouldn't be happening, period. Like, if anything, you want to get better as the game goes on, not start fast and then get worse. Um, like, not not every week. You can't do this every week, and we learned that against Utah, uh, where we didn't get a quick start, and then by the time the second half rolled around, the game was effectively over. Um, so that fight, or lack thereof, concerned me a little bit throughout the second half and in the fourth quarter especially with the onside kick and everything again that's like kind of like getting onside kicked against isn't our thing but just checking out mentally is definitely our thing this year uh again are are any of these like flaring up any concerns for the next game or is this all just kind of whatever move on like we're here to beat utah and that's you know have some blinders on about it well, I mean, we have definitely seen this before. We saw it in the US, UCLA game. Sorry. Uh, again, USC on the brain. But um, <laughs> in the UCLA game, obviously, it, we, we pretty much felt like Oregon had that game won. And then they just let UCLA right back into it and had to win it again, essentially. Um, and... If it wasn't for Oregon State going for two and failing on three straight touchdowns, uh, they would have put this at a one-possession game with eight minutes left. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that would have been pretty scary. Um, But they didn't. Uh, They did, you know, and and I think that this team, for whatever reason, does just have a bit of an issue uh, with taking the foot off the gas because – of uh, Sewell and Wright's absence, I'll give them a tiny bit of a break because I do feel like that was impactful. Um, and I'll also say, you know, this this offense gets touchdowns when it needs them pretty much. Uh, I mean, in this whole game, Oregon punts one time. Um, so I'm not going to go too, uh, too harsh on them. I think that I mean, ultimately, the thing that really derailed them or made it feel closer than it was was the onside kick. Yeah. Uh, and it's tough to really break that down. I mean, it just can't happen. You, whatever it is, you need to fix it. Um, but is it like an indictment of the team as a whole? Not really. It's just like the one isolated play that you just need to fix. But it doesn't tell me like, oh, this team isn't, good or whatever it's a lot mm-hmm. less scary than if if ab had thrown a pick immediately or or whatever i feel like um yeah definitely yeah. 
and again, it's a it's it was unexpected. Like you don't expect a team to onside in that situation, but it's something you have to have in the back of your mind and that you have to be prepared for. Like again, mentally, if you're in the front line of that kickoff return team, I guess. Yeah, you don't you don't expect it, but it wasn't absurd either. I mean, fourth yeah. quarter down two scores, like you you don't expect it, but you'd also like you know either the people the the players to have the you know um, presence of mind to to realize that, or for a coach to just whisper in their ear like, "Hey, maybe you know watch this ball come off the tee a second longer because we are in the fourth quarter and it is a two possession game like." And the Beavers obviously are going to try to scrape their way back into it somehow. Yeah, yeah. It was a very uh, Oregon State thing to do, kind of all around. Um, again, though, it, it didn't really end up mattering, not just because uh, Jonathan Smith went into, like, Mark Helfrich mode at some points with the two-point conversions, but just the fact that we were dominating in the trenches. Like, we didn't need... Oh, we didn't we didn't need to be elite on defense and thank god because we definitely weren't um and i mean even the plan of ben don't break didn't really pan out like they went five for five in the red, red zone just like we did um but when we had the ball we did what we needed to do um i think the drive that really stood out to me was in the fourth quarter we got the ball with what was it like eight minutes left or nine minutes left something like that um and we pretty yep. much ground the clock down by five minutes and scored a touchdown at the end of it. Um, just pretty a pretty solid outing altogether. You have to take injuries into consideration. Again, like they got into it, or the well, the teams got into it on the field. Oregon State got into the end zone a couple times, maybe when it was not as likely. Um Again, I think about you mentioned Musgrave, the tight end, got that fourth down touchdown by stretching the ball out. Um, they just had a couple. I don't know. They had a couple plays where I wasn't super concerned about uh, the outcome of you know of what it meant for this team. And again, we mentioned this in the last episode where we're at this stage by now where just win, period, and move on. Like we're not. We don't have to worry about style points or any of that crap. Um, if you get the result you need, you'll be fine. Uh, and the Ducks went out there and did what they needed to do yesterday. So in that sense, I'm, I'm satisfied. Yeah, um, I think I, one thing I wanted to mention was uh, on that big drive you said, you know, I mean, we've talked about it all season, as has any Duck fan that's been paying attention. Uh, Oregon's offense has been really bad when it gets behind the sticks. And on that drive, early in it, you have a chance to – to have the drive fall apart immediately. Mm-hmm. Second and eight, false start sets up a second and 13. And more times than not, you think, well, th- we're in a really bad spot here. Um, mm-hmm. And then you see Anthony Brown give it to Travis Dye for five yards on a short pass, and you go, well, I've seen this before. Uh, <laughs> you know, Can't wait and, for another and, check down behind y- the sticks. No third and exactly. And third and eight, he finds Chris Hudson for 20 yards. Huge catch. Uh, I mean, if you don't get that, you're punting the ball back to Oregon State in a 10-point game uh, with seven seconds or with seven minutes left. Mm-hmm. Um, you get that, and then you pound the ball for a little bit, um, but you get behind the sticks again. False start goes to a first and 15, 
uh, with four minutes, 37 seconds left. And this is like the last point when it felt like Oregon State has a chance to come back potentially if they get a stop really fast. Uh, Cardwell rips off a six-yard run. Cardwell, to, to make it second and nine, one-yard run. We're in another third and eight. Um, and you go back to Cardwell again, and he rips off a 31-yarder, um, converting another third and long. So that was something that this offense has really struggled with all season. And in that crucial drive, they do it twice. Um, and that's awesome. I mean, it, again, we, we say they've struggled with it, um, realizing that it, you know it's not easy to convert on third and eight, but this team's done it at what's felt like a kind of historically bad rate. Um, but getting two in a row is really impressive because it isn't an easy thing to do. Exactly. And, uh, I mean, we're obviously big adv- advocates for Cardwell, not just because he's a young guy, because we really, really like his upside. There will be discussion, and I'm sure we'll talk about this throughout the offseason, as to what the running back room depth chart looks like uh, with Verdell and Die not participating in senior day. Maybe they come back. Either way, I was glad that Cardwell gets the carry on uh, gets three straight carries on that series that you're talking about with like four and a half minutes left. Jonathan Smith calls a timeout after that first down run, uh, which I thought was interesting because mm-hmm. what that's really, and I mean, at that point there was still four and a half minutes left in the game. It's only a 10 point game. Like seems again, a little bit of an unorthodox way to do it. Uh, I guess, you know, if you get, if you get a, offense behind the chains i guess that's a good time to start calling timeouts but yeah uh again just overall the trench dominance showed out on that third and eight that's why i want earlier i was thinking about isolating it as like the play of the game just kind of as a microcosm of the whole game um obviously not as like the biggest play or anything but i was i don't know that was just kind of validating to see a third and eight okay we're just gonna run it with the same dude for the third time in a row and he's going to get what he needs, and that pretty much ices the game at that point. Um, other guys I want to mention, especially on defense, man, <laughs> we are the Brandon Norless podcast, and uh, Brandon Norless had himself a game yesterday. It seemed like every other play on defense, when they dropped back, he was just in the backfield, or even if they ran it. like He was yep. just all over the place whenever we needed it. Uh would you love? Would you want to say some more words about Brandon Norless? <laughs> Switch airpods. He was he was just awesome. I mean, it was there are a couple of those plays where it's like, especially running the ball. Um, there was one I think pretty early in the game uh, where I think it was B.J. Baylor kind of uh, you know is is running sees a gap. Norless just shreds his guy and he just picks up B.J. Baylor like a rag doll and just tosses him backwards. Basically, it was like one dude just with his arms completely stops the other guy's momentum um and throws him out he was awesome man he was he flashed every bit of the the nfl potential that i think we both feel like he has um he was really good um kt uh didn't have necessarily the um you know stats uh that that broke out in this one I don't think he had a sack on the day, um, but no, he but was, he had a really, he had a lot of pressures. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He was in their face. He was in he was in Nolan's face a lot, um, and it was it was a solid day for him, um, for sure. He had the one play on the two point conversion early that that was uh, pretty funny. 
um, where they try to read him basically, and he just is mm-hmm. stuck right in the middle of where they want to pitch it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, again, with KT, Oregon State did a decent job of taking him out of the game, you know, running to the opposite side, like either reading, you're trying to make him the read man. As you said, sometimes that worked, sometimes it didn't. Things we saw Utah do. We'll see how that goes against Utah, but whatever. Um, it was nice to see him have his have a nice senior day. Obviously, it's pretty, you know, <laughs> for those holding on to the last shred of hope that he wouldn't go to the NFL, uh, he's obviously is. Um, but I want to also mention when we talk about dominating the trenches, it wasn't just on defense, like, and it wasn't just in the run game on offense. I think it's easy to correlate those two things sometimes, yeah. but. Zero pressures, zero hurries or hits or anything allowed by this offensive line. Um, that was really impressive considering the absolutely terrible performance they had against Utah. Um, and we kept the rotation going, too. Jackson Powers Johnson gets 26 snaps in this game. That's more than he usually does uh, significantly. Um, Jeremillo also had 26. They were rotating. Those two were rotating with Moore and Sala at the uh, – left guard and right tackle spot, respectively. Um, Bass, Forsyth, and Jones played the whole game as uh, obviously left tackle, center, and right guard, respectively. But overall, this team as a unit really, really impressed me, and that was one area where we were a little bit concerned about was Oregon State's like front seven on defense and what they might be able to do. But again, just great job by the O-line, by the O-line. and it allowed Brown to do some really special things throughout the game. Um, is Dorless your defensive MVP? And if not, who else? Uh, I will take, I'll definitely take Dorless off the board being, being the ringleader of the Dorless fan club. Uh, but I also <laughs> want to shout out, um, Nate Hukalani got a lot of snaps when Sewell went down. Uh, and that was cool kind of given what, what he's contributed this year. And he, he's in that senior class too. Uh, and then Jackson Leduc coming back from injury, he gets 20 snaps. Mm-hmm. I think that's really helpful. And you never know if you're going to need to lean on him potentially um, either this Friday or in a bowl game. Uh, and so it definitely helps to get him him snaps too. So I wanted to mention both those. But I'll take Dorless for sure as my defensive MVP. Jason Jones also gets a lot of snaps, 22. Yeah. Um, maybe not a season high, but maybe somewhere close. Uh Verone McKinley had a great game. There's a lot mm-hmm. of discussion about the targeting or lack thereof. I don't know if you want to get into that at all. But uh, I'm going to be honest, from inside the stadium, it, it kind of looked like it with the one angle we were shown. Afterwards, I'm seeing a little more of the arguments, mainly that the receiver, like, I mean, if you watch the play, the receiver isn't even looking for the ball. He's just looking to hit Verone. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I don't know. That That's what kind of did it for me. Other than that, it sort of looks like targeting. But... Regardless, I think McKinley had a fantastic game. Um, had a few different breakups, five tackles, which actually leads the team. Kind of interesting there, but um, yeah, you don't see that very often. Yeah, so if you if you take Dorless, I guess I'll take Verone. Um, on offense, I think it's got to be either Devin Williams or AB. Like if we go one two right there. Both those guys had great games. Chris Hudson deserves a shout as well. Again, not just because of the touchdown, but just considering how much he's had to deal with this season uh, on and next to the field. 
Um, <laughs> mostly joke. Like again, that it's mostly in jest. Like he doesn't. <laughs> it's not a very big deal to people on the team, but it is to us just because that's the one glimpse of it we get to see. You know, so it's kind of fun. Uh, anybody yeah. else you want to sa- shout out from this one? I honestly was gonna go with. Um with Chris Hudson. I think that looking at production, I think Devin Williams and AB are are probably good good guys, but just in the stadium for me on the big plays especially, I felt like this was um really a breakout performance for Chris Hudson. We saw it a little bit um in against Utah, you know, he kind of was the guy I felt like who really stepped up there. Um, after the half and kind of had a few big plays. Um, but I felt like this was this was kind of, you know, in the biggest moments was his show. Um, he puts together some, some catches on uh, the first TD drive of the second half, punctuating it with the score from the seven, um, and has a 25-yarder right before that uh, on a second and ten. And then he puts together that third and eight catch with with just under seven minutes left uh, when this is a 10-point game for 20 yards. And honestly, I think that as a case for play of the game, just in terms of like, if you go back to one play in the second half where it felt like this game was in doubt, that was it to me, was like, if, if we don't convert here, we're giving the ball back to them and they have a lot of momentum. Uh, and Hudson comes up big and gets the catch. Um, and what I think he ends up leading the team in uh, in receptions with seven. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I I think yeah. I mean Devin Williams probably had a more productive day overall, but um, Chris Hudson just like that that we saw glimpses of it against Utah. But going forward, if Devin Williams comes back. And you have Chris Hudson really stepping into his own, and then you get year two of guys like Ter- uh, of guys like Troy Franklin and Dante Thornton, complemented by tight ends Terrence Ferguson, Maliki Matavau. Uh, Brevard steps in there, maybe T Mac steps in there. You know, like this receiver room, it it's crazy. You know, and and those injuries mm-hmm. to Johnson and Red, obviously we didn't wish for at all, and Pittman leaving. Um, you know, are unfortunate in this season, but it's like people had thought about, oh, what what are these weapons going to look like? And it's like in an instant, uh, those things clicked, you know, and now it's like this game was a little bit of a preview, like, man, this is the new look Oregon offense with all these fancy weapons. Um, and it looks pretty damn good, you know, at, at least it mm-hmm. looks like it has the potential to be. One kind of question that I developed while re-watching highlights of this game was, like, I and this is purely hypothetical, obviously, but, like, would you have rather had A.B. start the entire year last year, entire meaning all seven games, instead of Shuck? Like, I know it was a COVID year, and at the time it totally made sense to play Shuck and give him all those reps, but... Do you think Brown would be more consistent this season if he'd had those reps with us? Or is it just kind of, he is what he is by now. Like, if he hasn't been able to do it for five years, why, you know, why would he start being consistent in year six? Like, did you have that thought at all? Or, like, would you have 
like to to start all year last year? Yeah, I think. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I I I think it's interesting, I guess, but um, I feel like it is what it is. I think he he pretty much is this is the quarterback he is. He's settled in well enough. You yeah. know, um, I mean, you know, with the margins in a game like the Stanford game, you do wonder a little bit, like, does does he not throw that one pick there? Does he, you know, make a better decision on this third down? Uh, and maybe we get out of Stanford alive. And as crazy as it sounds with the current playoff picture, um, you know, if, if Oregon had gotten out of Stanford alive, even – you can't project all this stuff, but even if it, with a Utah loss, it's like there aren't that many playoff teams left, you know? Like, yeah, it's like yeah. we would we would be, even if we'd lost to Utah by a sizable margin, maybe it would have been a little less, but we would have been like one upset away from a playoff spot, potentially, if you survived the Stanford game. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, that's that's a whole nother hypothetical. I think this this team's fine where it's at, though, so I don't really second guess it too much. Um, and it, you know, I mean, going back into the COVID thing, and we talked about this last year, but with the off season being so weird last year, like I don't think there was room for any real quarterback competition. And we have to remind ourselves, like as fans, what were people saying going into that year? People were saying like, <laughs> Shuck could be a better quarterback than Herbert was in college. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, like that was a a pretty popular take on Ducks Twitter. Uh, we got to own that one. And so, uh, you know, he he had to get his chance uh, and it worked out the way it did. But this program's fine where it's at now, I think. Um, and, I, and I feel happy with what AB has done for us this year. Uh, you would have loved to go to a playoff, but ultimately I think um, 10 and two, that's awesome. Uh, it's kind of weird to react to this game. I feel like because you know, I kind of catch myself saying, well, it doesn't change how I feel that much about it, but I do have to take a step back to a week ago. And like, we were really shaken on what this team is and we just lost by 30. Um, so it does kind of, it was a rebound game that was like, okay, first 10 games of the season weren't a mirage. This team actually is pretty good. They probably are in top 10, top 15 team in the country. Really seriously, they are, even though they got blown out at Utah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was cool. It was a good, good day, like I said. I agree. Uh, flowers to Travis Dye as well. Um, oh, I just had the line in front of me, and now it got away from me. Uh, 20 carries for 99 yards and two touchdowns, five yard per carry average. Not, not bad at all. Um, again, AB had a good time too, rushing the ball 83 yards on 14 runs and a touchdown. A night athletic touchdown too. He stretched it out. Um, Anthony Brown. No matter how you slice it, it's ironic that he finishes the year as the leading, uh, the leader in net yards in the conference, um, <laughs> passing and passing and rushing combined. Like, I guess yes. technically speaking, USC and Cal still have a a game to play in the regular season, but I, whatever. Um, I don't AB know was great who would be game. a candidate there. Yeah, me neither. Drake London um, isn't coming back. Um, and given that their quarterbacks have split. 
Do you do you want to get into this senior day? Who walked? Who didn't? What that could mean? Talk at all? Um, uh, we can a little bit. Yeah, I mentioned KT. That's the obvious one, but and the running backs as well. Who else stood out to you as being on that list or not? Well, for me, I think the KT being on the list was not only interesting because it you know, confirmed the obvious that KT, unfortunately, is is going to go to the NFL draft after this season. But I think a lot of people were like, oh, KT isn't a senior. Why is he on here, right? Um, and that might seem like, oh, nothing. It's just a little exception. But it tells me, well, there is a way to get on here if you're not a senior, you know? <laughs> and it probably has to do with you having a graduate degree, having graduated, have your degree set, which we know KT did and all of that, right? But it's also like these rules are not that hard. If someone has a degree and they go to Cristobal and they say, this is my last game at Oregon, they probably could have walked in this event, right? It, mm -hmm. I mean, we don't know that, but I feel like that's a pretty safe assumption. So along those lines, you think of CJ Verdell, Travis Dye, um, you think of Farone McKinley even as a guy who could go. Mm -hmm. uh, you think of Mikhail Wright, um, who kn I don't know whether he has his degree yet, given that like KT, he hasn't been here for the full four years. Um, so maybe that has to do with it. Um, Popo Amave probably has his degree, didn't walk. Um, <laughs> probably. <laughs> been here since 2017. So right. Yeah. <laughs> So all those guys, I don't think it means that they are coming back for sure, but it kind of tells me they don't have a decision done yet because I think if they did, they well, if they, if they decided 100% they were leaving, they probably would have wanted to walk in this, right? Um, mm -hmm. You'd guess. Mm -hmm. um, other The guys who were included, um, it's a bunch of, you know, walk-on guys uh, for the most part, which big respect to them. Um, and Mosley mm -hmm. tweeted something out that I quote tweeted that was, you know, these guys are, are so important to the program and do so much behind the scenes that fans don't see complete cosign on that. A lot of them are also local guys, which is super cool. Um, kind of living the dream playing for Oregon. And they really do a lot to set the culture of the program in practice. Um, you know, so, I mean, mm -hmm. They make up a scout team or something and and that matters that those guys are going 100 percent to you know replicate whatever the opponents see um otherwise the big guys are ab johnny johnson jalen red and then drew mathis also who i think drew had a year of eligibility left um mm -hmm. so that maybe means he's grad transferring somewhere else uh or doing something else Wh whatever it is it it's that's that was the one kind of surprise guy that showed up on there yeah um drew mathis a lot of guys he kind of flew under the radar even in this podcast like a uh, guy who came in 20 2019 i believe um after going to mm -hmm. san diego state in 2016 and then he was at a juco uh for the next two years but um Again, huge prop to him. I love how you mentioned all the walk-ons. Again, scout team is – that's the type of thing that's much more important to somebody who's actually in the door at the program than a lot of the fans will, you know, give the walk-ons credit for. Like, if your scout team is terrible during the week, 
that doesn't help anybody on the team. Uh, in fact, it hurts the entire team. So you always need those guys ready to go to get your first team ready to go. Um, I always mention Jack Becky because he went to Central and I played uh, um, CYO ball with him. It was also funny because we actually, the team we used to play on played against Trey Lowe and I actually had to guard him as like a third grader. So <laughs> you can imagine how poorly that went. <laughs> There's no team, tape but... of that out there. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> thankfully, there wasn't a lot of passing going on in those days, but um, yeah, it, it would have I, I would have been exposed pretty bad. Anyways, yeah, uh, I love all the names you mentioned. I think Popo might be the most interesting one that wasn't on there, I, other than Wright, obviously, is, is kind of the yeah. obvious one. Um, but yeah, man, I feel good about the future of this team. We say that like every single episode by now. Um, but <laughs> we've given some context to it now. Uh, do you want to jump into utah at all or do you want to talk general conference stuff first before we go championship game yeah i think that um i think that we can do a little bit of utah for sure but i think you know we'll we'll dive into that big time midweek um i'm hoping to do uh to maybe get avery on from no truck stops this time uh so we'll see if that comes together um we can talk about expectations though and, and Rose Bowl stuff. What, where do you want to go? I like that. Uh, I think it's, I don't know, a, a lot of people seem to be wondering why a team that um, was underdogs by a touchdown and then lost 38 to 7 is now somehow only a three point underdog um, after like pretty much exactly what was expected out of both teams in, in the week in between. Um, do you have any thoughts on why the spread is what it is? Like, it can't be that Utah just made that big of a difference in home field advantage. Like, they ran us on that field. Make no mistake about it. Is there any sort of reason that you can see the scales tilting towards Oregon a little bit more than last time? Um, or does it just boil down to that was a kind of some of those scores were kind of random and that's the way football works and the Ducks will be better? Yeah, I think um, it. You want to. It, it, there's like a careful way to have these discussions. I think because we're not trying to say you know that it's random or that you Utah didn't earn their win, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But there is variance in these results, and it's just you know when you line two teams up, the same thing doesn't happen every single time, um, and so I think that. You know, Oregon got totally out of its rhythm in that game, and a lot of things went wrong, and the home field didn't help with any of that. Um, and so I think that what Vegas is seeing is uh, when you rematch these teams, you know, they didn't learn that much. I think that the line was Utah minus three the first time, and it's the same one now without the home field. Oh, was um, it? I think oh, it yeah, was, wait, yeah. Right. I don't know why I thought the touchdown but whatever maybe maybe that maybe because of the 2019 conference championship um but either but either way you know so i think they adjusted their power ratings by you know three points either way um based on this and then d corrected for that based on home field um to arrive at the same spread um mm-hmm. and 
I mean, that is just how power ratings work, to be honest. Like, they, especially in week 12 of a season, like, no result is going to change your power rating by that much for two teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's pretty interesting. I think it's interesting, too, because I'm sure that there's a lot of action uh, probably being put on Utah. Um, maybe, maybe not, but, um, the splits are 55% on Utah, 45 on Oregon. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's super interesting. Um, I, yeah, I don't mind the number though that much ultimately. Uh, I mean, I think Utah right now, I feel like they probably deserve to be favored obviously based on what they did, but at the same time, Oregon has built a reputation for big games coming through, um, this that didn't happen two weeks ago but uh utah still hasn't won a conference title in the pac-12 and oregon's Mm -hmm. won the last two so i i fully expect to see a more motivated oregon team uh and i expect it to be you know a close-ish game um that will be decided kind of by who gets in rhythm um, and how it goes, you know, I think that or there is a version of this game where Oregon can do something kind of similar to what they just did to Oregon State. And, and that maybe that sounds ridiculous. But again, Oregon State beat Utah. Um, maybe it's not the exact same thing, but, you know, kind of like if it, I think Oregon can move the ball if they execute, uh, they're going to be, a, you know, they're not going to have quite the same advantage on the line of scrimmage, but I do think that with the matchup of this game, it's kind of like either team who gets ahead early by two scores is going to be in a pretty good spot. Um, Mm -hmm. And so if Oregon has the early game break their way, they could win that, win the game by double digits. You mentioned not a prediction, (laughs) yeah, of course we'll do those on Tuesday. Um, but I like that you mentioned the two points I wanted to bring up. There's two things that don't show up on paper necessarily um, that are pretty much the two reasons why Utah won that game by as much as they did, and it's motivation and momentum. Utah was very obviously way more motivated than Oregon were. I mean, that was their game, as we mentioned, their biggest regular season win probably ever. Um, you know, you storm the field, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of it just snowballed on Oregon, right? Like, the Britton Covey punt return is kind of what everybody focuses on as, like, the, you know, halftime nail in the coffin. But, like, honestly, even the drive before that to go up 21-0 was absolutely demoralizing for this team. So, yeah. again, it was like a perfect storm of terrible things happening at once for Oregon and Utah. And it's, like, taking a step back from it, all those events in series with each other were extremely unlikely and it didn't really yeah. seem that way when you were watching it. Cause it, again, it was just momentum <laughs> building upon itself. But like, yeah, I mean, if we were honest with ourselves and like went back and really watched the tape, like you don't expect Utah horrible. to go up 21 zero. Like you don't expect Oregon to have two block, you know, have a blocked field goal and another missed field goal. Like all these things coming together. Yes. We got, dominated at the line of scrimmage but what does dominance actually look like on paper right dominance is like a 60 70 percent success rate um with your 
you know, meaning you win the battle in the trenches like that percent of the time. Also, what does winning a play actually mean? Like, some guys are going to win, some guys are going to lose on every play on between the lines. Like, that's just how football works. Um, unless you're playing like Stony Brook or whatever, then you should be, you know, you're, you shouldn't be winning every single down. Um, so we'll see which big plays tip in which team's favor. But um, as for now, I think that kind of serves the purpose um, of that. What we can say is that Oregon has clinched its third straight Pac-12 North Division title. Obviously, we'll be playing for the third. Well, <laughs> actually, I Close guess I can't say that part. Series, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oregon will be playing in his third straight Pac-12 title game. Um, from a you know conference-wide significant standpoint, a chance to get three in a row really puts your stamp on things. I believe we had three in a row during the chip era, if I'm remembering correctly, or at least somewhere in there. I think we, well, didn't we, maybe we started with three in a row to win the Pac-12. I don't know. Uh, well, Either we way. We won Pac-12 and nine, 10, and 11. Yeah. Did we in 11? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because we played yeah. in the 2012 Rose Bowl versus Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good point. So yeah, I mean, in twelve, I think. Yeah, Stanford got it in twelve. But point being, like, I mean, we right now it's undisputed. Even if Utah wins that game, that from a, a long term like trajectory standpoint, Oregon is pretty much exactly where we want to be. Um, you know, things break one way or another during the course of a season. But if you really lay it all out on paper, we're going to have a pretty fun off season talking about this team. I think it's safe to say. Uh, one thing I noticed during my Thanksgiving, um, egg bowl festivities, uh, was that the announcers kept talking about the Ole Miss game or team that had nine wins and was looking for its 10th as like, oh, well, if they win this game, they're most likely going to make it to a, a new Year's six bowl. And as you wrote down in these notes, like it got me thinking like, huh, if Oregon gets 10 wins, you know, Oregon's a more attractive brand than Ole Miss nationwide. Like, even if we lose, do you think this team squeezes into a New Year's Six Bowl somewhere? That's what I'm really interested in. Um, I heard I heard the guys on uh, Aughts and Audibles, I think it was Scope, will kind of say that he thought that Oregon had a good chance of making one. Honestly, when I first heard the question... I kind of scoffed and was like, Oregon's not making one uh, with three losses. But you dig into it, and um, there's a case. There's a case. Mm-hmm. Oregon has mm-hmm. at, is at 11 right now. We're going to see some playoff rankings that will tell us a lot in terms of this discussion coming up. Uh, and I think it's safe to say Oregon's going to stay ahead of, you know, all the teams behind them probably um a lot of you know wisconsin and a&m lose uh i don't think that uh michigan state did enough to jump oregon maybe there's a case there but anyways oregon's gonna go ahead of oklahoma um and they're gonna have a chance to jump baylor if baylor loses uh i mean if oregon loses who knows how that looks um but, yeah, what are the spots that are taken up here, I guess, is the better way to go through it. Yep. So yep. you have, what are there, five at-large buy-ins that are there? I'm looking at four you know, right remember? now because uh, 
Well, it, let's lay it out. Obviously, you have the two semifinals take up two of the six spots. Um, the mm-hmm. Rose Bowl is strictly Big Ten and strictly Pac-12. You can't have like a yeah. that large. As is, like, again, we're assuming Oregon would lose to Utah in this scenario just for the sake of discussion. Yeah. Um, no way you're getting in that one. Sugar Bowl is Big 12 and SEC. I believe that's locked in as well um, mm-hmm. with those two conferences, which leaves the Peach so Bowl. It's probably, which is, so it's probably Bama and uh, Baylor or Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah, like the um, yeah. the loser of the Big 12 championship or like if – yeah, it, it's a Big 12 team. Um, right. That leaves the Peach Bowl, which is two at-larges in Atlanta, and the Fiesta Bowl in Glendale with two at-larges as well. Um, if Cincinnati gets in, does that take away the group of five, like New Year's Six tie-in thingy? Do you know? I honestly have no idea. I think it I might. Think it should. But... It should. I think okay, it should. So, anyway, so four, four left, you're saying? Yeah. So, like, Notre Dame probably gets one. So, let's um, let's assume that Oklahoma State, Cincy, Michigan, and Georgia are in the playoff. Okay. Bama that, is, ta- is taken. Um, yep. takes, takes one of them. We'll say takes Baylor takes. Well, yeah, no, Bama Bay- would go to the Sugar Bowl. Yeah, yeah. Bama goes Sugar Bowl and Baylor goes there too. Yeah, yeah. So that leaves that leaves. Uh, who are we like fighting against for those at-large spots? Like Notre Dame probably gets one. Ole mm-hmm. Miss maybe. Oklahoma and at that point, I mean, in the rankings at least, Oregon is right there. Uh, like BYU maybe we're fighting against. I mean, oh, if God. you're a New Year's Six bold who are you taking between like BYU and Oregon, right? I guess that's a discussion to be had. Michigan State is there. Michigan State's there. Again, Um, like Wisconsin's got three losses already. They would be a 10-win team. Or a 9-win team. would lose in this scenario. Uh, Oh, did we factor in the ACC as a tie-in somewhere? But you already already gave them that. yeah, yeah, dude, there true. isn't – there's no one. There isn't a team. <laughs> like, yeah, again, like an I ACC team gets thrown in there. So I think it's like I think there's of five, right now. I think there's five teams for four spots. I think it's Ohio State – well, Ohio State and Michigan are taking the Rose Bowl, and one of those is left over. Notre Dame, uh, whoever doesn't get in from Baylor, Oklahoma – Um. Old Miss and Oregon. Yeah. That's five, I think. And there are four spots. And BYU, so six. I think those are the only six who could get it because Pitt lost, right? So, um, well, the ACC cha- isn't the isn't the ACC champion still guaranteed a a New Year's Six? Bowl? Yeah, is that not included in the four? There's no, because because the Orange Bowl is a. Um, I guess we should. I guess we should knock the at-large numbers down to three because the Orange Bowl is a semifinal game, and uh, since the Rose and Sugar Bowls have strict conference tie-ins yeah. now that don't include the ACC, then yeah, I would. So I would assume like whoever wins the ACC title gets to the Peacher um, Fiesta Bowl. I guess. So it's but, those for three spots. 
even then man yeah. i mean that's that's not confirmed like i don't know that for a fact it just seems like a rule that would exist i'm trying to scroll through the wiki pages right well, now no, notre <laughs> dame's out, gonna but... take notre dame's gonna take one for sure um yeah unfortunately yeah Ole miss probably has one locked in too i mean 10 and 2 Ole miss versus 10 and 3 oregon like i guess you give it to Ole miss gonna, they've been like the better gonna... team they're going to give it to Ole Miss. So then it's – and Ohio State's going to get one. You just hope Michigan State gets bumped. Um, it's basically Oregon. I mean, I think, Oregon, I think we would go. Oregon, Michigan State. State, and the loser – and whoever they don't choose from Baylor, Oklahoma. Yeah. And BYU's yeah. in there, but they're not really. Um, we're the best brand there except for Oklahoma. But, yeah, that's interesting um it'd have to be close it depends another thing that's interesting is is the um the tie-in with the rose bowl so what do you mean by that I, uh if oregon does make the rose bowl who would they play so the thing oh, that happened right. with 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 ohio state losing first instinct is well they're the highest rated playoff college football playoff team so the Rose Bowl is going to pick them for the Big Ten slot, but not necessarily. Um, they are allowed to pick who they want, so they could mm-hmm. take Michigan State and put Ohio State in the other one. Um, whereas they would have to choose Oregon if Oregon wins. Uh, so yeah. if Oregon's locked in there. You just wonder if they decide to go for the rematch between Oregon and Ohio State or if they decide not to do the rematch. Um, and that'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys I can make up your own have... mind on on whether you'd want to or not. What did you what do you want to say? I mean, I just want to say like they would pick Ohio State. I mean, I, yeah. I don't really see a scenario in which they don't. That would be an absolutely like salivating they'd be salivating at the thought of that rematch, I think. Um, again, this is all assuming that Michigan is in the playoff. I think everyone is expecting them to be in that top. I mean, they will be in that top four when it gets released on Tuesday. Um, and I mean, of course it relies on them beating Iowa. The hairy stuff is if like Iowa wins that game, then they're in, I mean, that's a much, I think that's kind of the ideal scenario, right? Is Iowa beating Michigan going to the Rose Bowl, and then the Ducks playing playing Iowa. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that'd be pretty sweet. Um, don't, don't look now, but <laughs> 538 playoff predictor. Oh. If Georgia wins, yeah. Cincinnati loses, Michigan loses, and Oklahoma State loses – Oregon has a 43% chance to make the playoff. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> we'll talk more funny, on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk on Tuesday. Um, that, is, that is very interesting, though. Uh, there just aren't that many teams left, though. I mean, there is a crazy scenario where, like, there really aren't that many teams left, but I think Oregon's two losses and the blowout loss puts them out entirely. But like, 
if that loss had even been closer to Utah, I think that the door would have the tiniest crack. But also, I, I mean, in this hypothetical, we're getting so far off track, but in this hypothetical, like if we were to beat Utah and avenge the loss from two weeks ago, then it kind of erases it a little bit more than it would. Yeah, before. especially if that had been like a close loss. But but no, it's it's dead people. But um, <laughs> don't get your hopes up. Yeah, <laughs> cling to that 43 percent, though. Um, OK, uh, do you want to talk about some of these conference championship games? Because, I mean, as we look at the sort of assumed top five right now of Georgia, Michigan, Bama, Cincy, Oklahoma State, like there's some potential for some really interesting shit to go down in college football this weekend. Um, yep. It's kind of nice in a way that the Pac-12 has this Friday game sort of screws Oregon over because uh, uh, Utah had their game on a Friday. I guess that's our fault for not planning ahead in that regard. But anyways, um, we'll get to – Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get to <laughs> sit back and just uh, shit on everybody else no matter what happens. Um, mm-hmm. So Perfect. Saturday, obviously the SEC championship is probably the most interesting of all these matchups. You got Georgia against Bama in Atlanta. Yep. The assumption is that Georgia wins or loses that they're in, um, and that if Bama loses, they're out. Do you, you see wanna... any way around that scenario? No, I think that's a hundred. Well, no, I, I Bama can get in this thing if they lose. Um, really, it would take chaos. But with I mean... all the weird crap that's gone down this year with Bama like all the close wins we didn't even mention their stumble in the Iron Bowl like yes and here's the reason why as I said there just are not that many teams people there are no teams left there's seven teams no there's six teams with one loss or less yeah like it's crazy Oklahoma State loses. We're down to five. Cincinnati loses. If, if Oklahoma State and Cincinnati lose, you're going to have Georgia in. You're going to have Michigan in. You're going to have Notre Dame in, even though they haven't Will played you anyone. Will... How I don't do know. you? They're not going to. They probably won't keep two lost Bama out because they just don't have. They don't have anyone else to put in. They're not putting 12 and 1 Cincy in over them. They're not putting a two loss Oklahoma State or Baylor in over them. There's, and there's no, there literally is not another team to put in the playoff. I don't doubt that they would do it, but I hate that they I don't, would do it. I don't think it's, I don't think we're getting there though. Um, I think Cincy's going to hold on to this thing. Partially, I hope they will. I, personally, right now, I'm not even rooting for chaos on championship Saturday uh, because I feel like we've gotten to a really good point through this season. We've whittled down the group, and I am totally happy with a Georgia, Michigan, Cincy, Oklahoma State playoff. Sign me up. I'm ready for it. I think those four teams have are the four that have put together a resume that I'm okay sending to the playoff. Um and so I, I, I'm that I'd be super happy with that playoff. I don't need any chaos this weekend. So say the chalk does pull through, and those four teams mm-hmm. you mentioned make it in. 
being Georgia, Michigan, Cincy, and Oklahoma State. Is that your one, two, three, four right there in that order? Or is Cincy relegated to four and you get Oklahoma State against Michigan? Um, I don't know. I don't know, really. Uh, it, it probably depends what Oklahoma State and Cincy do this weekend, honestly. I'll be interested to I see mean, say they're Oklahoma all blowouts. I mean, I, th- I, think, I think Oklahoma State should probably be three. Uh, honestly, for me, it's like if you're a one-loss Power 5 champ, you get in over a undefeated G5 team in my book. Yeah, same. Um, and don't, so, don't give me that, listeners, don't give me that, oh, since he beat Notre Dame crap. Like, please, man. I understand that's an impressive win, but, like, that's one game out of 12 very easy games. And and then the question is, who did Notre Dame beat? Um, and it's <laughs> like a completely different Wisconsin team that they were in a really close game with until the end in week four, and then literally nobody. Um, literally yeah, Virginia nobody Tech, at all. A lot of a lot of just mid teams, which is still more mm. impressive than the rest of Cincinnati's schedule, I will say. Because you're beating teams like Virginia Tech and North Carolina and Virginia. Like, you're beating mid-tier ACC teams instead of mid-tier AAC teams. Um, I think that I think that's mostly true. But, like, even, uh, like, Houston still might be the second best game of all those. Of, of everything that's happened since those two teams played each other. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Definitely yeah, a better way. note to go out on than a win at Stanford. Um, speaking yeah. of which, do you want to cover the rest of these Pac-12 results real quick and then jump into conference-wide discussion? Or do you want to keep going on playoff? Uh, no, I think we're good on playoff. I, I think people it's it's a pretty simple format. I don't feel like there's much to break down right now. You know, we'll we'll see what the rankings are Tuesday. Uh, and then we'll talk about it a little bit when when the whole thing finally shakes out. But it's not like that interesting. There's not that crazy of a debate. I feel like it's going to get sorted out one way or another. We kind of have the four that we want to get in, and then Notre Dame's that alternative that no one really wants to see. But because they're eleven and one, you could you know you can throw them in there and sacrifice them to Georgia uh, to <laughs> lose by thirty. You know, like, and it'll and it'll be like fine, and, and and in three years, no one will really remember that that Notre Dame team didn't exactly play anyone. So, it would it would be invalidating though of a couple of different things. Either way, though, um, yeah, let, let's just talk about this. What this Pac-12 slate was. We had Utah beating up on Colorado. I guess it well twenty-eight to thirteen doesn't sound as bad as it was. Um. That one wasn't really close. Let me pull up our picks real quick to see what the spread was on that game. Oh, uh, what do you know? I missed a pick. Um, you had Colorado with the points, and you won it. They seemed to shut Utah down in the fourth quarter. Apple Cup was way more interesting, though, even though the scoreline wasn't. Washington State, 40, UW, 13. Uh, did you get to catch a lot of this game, Reed? Not that much, actually. I was at a, out at dinner, sadly, uh, in Eugene. Um, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> eating, some, eating some good Thai food. Um, but it was uh, nice to check the score and see that Washington was indeed getting killed 
uh, officially four and eight. <laughs> Um, we need a we need some reverse quote. I don't know what it would be from, you know, taking the Oregon from four and eight to Rose Bowl champs, like from playoff <laughs> participants to four and eight. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, seriously though, let's see what uh, what UW can do with this opportunity with a new head coach. We'll talk about who that maybe might be in a in a few minutes, but um, yeah, that's definitely an interesting comparison. Like that we'll be able to throw on there from the Helfrich era to what Mario did, now from the Jimmy Lake era to whatever you double do in the next few years. Um, we both got that pick right, by the way. That seemed to be the easiest win of the of the um, weekend. Arizona at ASU. Um, final score, Arizona State 38, Arizona 15. Arizona does not cover the 20 and a half, so that sucks for both of us, but I think we've both given up on picks at this point. Um, do you have anything to say about that game, or should I keep chugging? Uh, no, I don't really have anything to say about that game. Okay, Notre Dame beats the crap out of Stanford. I don't even want to dwell on the fact that I watched a lot of that game. Uh... BYU 35, USC 31. Not sure if you caught a glimpse of this, but it was pretty damn entertaining at the end. USC made it really interesting. And apart from some, from some god-awful play calling at the end, I think they could have pulled this one off in the Coliseum. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, wow, I actually <laughs> picked USC correctly. That's crazy. Uh, Cal at UCLA. Cal fails to cover the six and a half. They lose forty-two to fourteen. Um, poor Garbers, man. The dude was just getting absolutely blown up this entire game. Um, he did what he could, but uh, good for Chip, I guess. Um, yep. UCLA is probably going to keep him around with an eight-win season, right? Six and three in the Pac-12. Yeah, especially with all the coaching moves right now. Yep. Yep. Um, all right, I think that's it. Did I miss any? No, I think you're good. Um, let me just pause for a second here. I got to go grab a charger real quick, um, and we'll tap back in for a second if that's cool with you. Works for me. All right, through the magic of editing, we're back. Um, let's get right to it. Lincoln Riley hired by USC this morning after hilariously saying last night that he wouldn't, quote, not go to LSU um, and be the head coach there in Ordron's absence. Uh, I think on the surface, this is a great move for the conference in general. It shows that USC is is willing to go out and get a top candidate for a top job in the country. Um, do you have any doubts about the uh, immediate hype of this move by USC? The hype is going to be real for sure. Um I wrote this in the doc, and I think this is how I always contextualize conversations about Oregon. Um, I always kind of, throughout my life, am filing away moments to put into a future Oregon 30 for 30 documentary. And mm-hmm. this moment, like Lincoln Riley being hired at USC, is gonna is in that documentary. You know, that is... You know, mm-hmm. 
or every Oregon fan's dream story of Oregon winning a national championship. For better or worse, this is a turning point in that story. Um, and it's not only that because Lincoln Riley is a really good head coach, um, at least a huge name, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you can debate whether or not this hire will succeed uh, or how successful it will be. But the fact that they got him over LSU tells one thing, like you said, Pac-12, it's great um, as a large picture that it's going to make this conference feel a lot more serious. It's going to go back to the days when the Pac-12 wasn't overlooked as much in the early 2000s and even going into the early 2010s. Um, But for USC particularly, it's scary because Lincoln Riley is not taking this job if he doesn't know for a fact that USC is going to be more serious about football and more serious about getting quote-unquote back um, and putting together the financial investments that come with that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a massive, massive hire. Uh, it's, it's huge. It changes the landscape of the conference and of the sport as a whole. Um, will it be successful? We can't know that for sure right now, but I mean, this is a massive name with openings that we've seen at LSU that still isn't filled. And it seems like they wanted Riley. It's pretty crazy that, that USC was the ones who got him one, but even a job like Texas Mm -hmm. that people thought for so long was comparable to USC. Um, and at Texas, obviously there aren't quite the same questions about investment in football. I mean, they're pretty serious about it there. Um, But even they, you know, had to reach for candidates like a Steve Sarkeesian, who, yes, is a good offensive mind and look positive and and joined the Saban coaching tree and all that. But I mean, you know, he hadn't he hasn't accomplished the things that Lincoln Riley did at Oklahoma. So you really don't see coaches of that caliber move from an, a top, you know, whatever you want to say, Oklahoma is it's top, it's a top 10 job in the sport, probably, uh, to another top 10 job in the sport without being fired mm-hmm. or pushed out the door or anything at all. That's really rare and speaks to how serious USC took this thing for the first time in a, in a long time. And it also, you touched on, uh, like sort of the ranking of, you know, job like tiers throughout college football. It kind of solidified for me at least that USC is sort of uh, in that top group. Sorry, <laughs> in that top group of places you would want to coach. I mean, obviously it's in LA, like that's great, whatever. Um, but just the fact that you can go and literally poach a current head coach from a playoff caliber program every season. I mean, again, people are like some people who don't understand the landscape as well are like clowning on uh, Riley for doing this. Like, how could you leave such a successful program to go to a place like USC that sucks? Like, again, it's not about team success. It's more about program wide investment. Um, and like you said, I mean, it shows that USC have buy-in and that's really all they've, 
you know, buy-in and a competent head coach is really the only thing that separates USC from being in that elite crop of college football teams and programs. So, again, we'll see how things break for the Trojans in the next few years, but I, overall, you have to take it right now as a great sign for the conference. In terms of what it means for the Ducks, like, yeah, maybe it knocks us off the current pedestal we're on. I mentioned earlier, like, there's no doubt that regardless of the outcome of the next game, Oregon is the king of the Pac-12, as it has been for the last two years. Um, I'm curious what this means for the rest of the conference, though. Like, it definitely spells trouble for the Pac-12 South, obviously. Uh, but for a, a program like Washington, who's also looking for another head coach, uh, Arizona State, who, again, similar caliber to UW in terms of a program, like, they may, I, I guess they have a vote of confidence in Herm recently, but I mean, we can project to even next year, like <laughs> yeah. they're going to have to find somebody at some point. Like and, it's, it's clear that Herm is not going to work long. And there. it feels like UCLA fans are close to there with Chip Kelly that, that yep. they get one more year, but are probably looking for someone too soon also. Yeah. Uh, like I want to lead into the question that you wrote down, which is how long is this rebuild really going to take? Like, We've seen some decommitments from Oklahoma. I've seen at least three guys so far. There's probably more that I'm unaware of. Um, but, like, how long do you see it taking for USC to kind of build themselves back into that juggernaut? Well, so there are two factors to this that just make me absolutely terrified as an Oregon fan. <laughs> um and they both relate to the same thing. The question of how long does a rebuild take? And we know that Lincoln Riley is a pretty solid game day coach. Um, how absolutely elite he is, you can, you know, differ one way or another, but he's a top five, you know, probably offensive coach in the sport uh, or in college football. Um, maybe top 10, but he's damn good uh and he develops the quarterback really well is, is another scary thing um but he also not only is he those things he is the absolute scariest scenario possible for a a coach that can come in there and change the usc roster instantly usc's roster was in a pretty bad spot uh, I talked. I've talked about it a lot. I've disagreed with some other Pac-12 fans about it. Um, that I felt like that USC had a real hole because of a really bad 2020, 2020 recruiting class. 2021 was a little better, but they had no offensive linemen out there still. Um, and just in general, I I just warn people: look, USC is not in the same roster position that they were in 2013 or even in 2019, they are, they are falling out of the top 10 nationally in 247 composite, team talent rating. They're in a worse spot. But look, man, Oklahoma, the classes that Lincoln Riley have built there have been insane. Um, in, and we saw this wave of decommitments. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, that that he had a huge lead on the rest of the country in the 2023 class mm -hmm. before this, and we saw big decommitments there today. Um, 
and more rumored, and a lot of those guys are from California. You have two of the top receivers in the country, a tandem at Los Alamitos, uh, Makai Lemon and DeAndre Moore, two guys who might end up five stars. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that they probably both end up at USC now, Um, as was the top quarterback in the country also there and the number two player in the nation uh, in 2023. Or I guess he wasn't the top. I think um, he was the second. But but regardless, Malachi Nelson Mm -hmm. out of California. I would pretty good bet I think he probably follows – Uh, Lincoln Riley to USC so the lead that they had in 2023 already with guys in California Riley's gonna gonna bring a lot of those guys over one two he has so much respect and he's such a big name uh, that we have to remember this is also happening in the transfer portal era Um, and Mm -hmm. they're gonna patch this roster together with transfers uh whether it's people from Oklahoma want to come you know people have mentioned Rattler or even Caleb Williams transferring I I don't know if that's going to happen uh I don't really care though I mean Jackson Dart is is looks like a damn good quarterback right now I don't I I'm not convinced that getting Rattler over him is an upgrade at all um and that's just at quarterback but all around here one you're at usc there was already going to be hype around it but two you get lincoln riley this thing can change fast i mean it's going to be a crazy off season for them uh and lincoln riley has the next 20 days or whatever it is until this early signing period to recruit his tail off that's all he has to do he doesn't have to worry about a single game plan um so it's pretty scary uh this you know like i like i said i i thought that the usc roster was in a worse worse position than a lot of people and before i knew it was lincoln riley you know if matt campbell steps in there like it looked like this thing was moving in that direction for the past 48 hours kind of um Mm -hmm. or 48 hours ago um i would have told you i don't think that usc is going to have a better roster than oregon uh, in the next three years, and I would have been pretty confident about that. Uh, and some people would have pushed back, but I would have been pretty confident about that. With Lincoln Riley there, dude, this thing can shift so fast in the transfer portal, and with the recruiting um, tracks that they're already laying down and the connections that he has in California, it's mm-hmm. it's pretty scary how fast he can build this thing up for sure. I think that the trenches advantage for Oregon at the line of scrimmage probably buys Oregon a year or two where they might be the better team. Uh, but after that, it's the great unknown as far as I'm concerned. And, and I think that given what Riley's done on the recruiting trail and his success in California – uh USC is in a pretty good position I mean it was after the Utah game that we were kind of trying to put into perspective things and I asked you and, and the listeners you know if you could trade with any Pac-12 fan base over the next 10 years would you do it um and easy no I said no at the time I- but at 
after this move, I'm I I think that USC probably is is in a better spot than Oregon. Maybe yeah, maybe we're overreacting a little bit, but I I the biggest thing I'm actually looking at isn't even necessarily the roster. It isn't the transfer portal recruiting any of that yet. In this off season, <clears throat> God, this voice is really quitting on me. In this off season, what I'm really looking for is energy and hype surrounding the USC program. Mm-hmm. You watch that BYU game on Saturday, and there are way more BYU fans in the Coliseum than USC fans. This is the kind of hire that can turn that sort of thing around quicker than people expect. Um, again, we you can even use UCLA as an example. Like, there was nobody at the Rose Bowl for DTR's like senior day, even though he literally explicitly asked them to show up for it. Um, in my point being. In LA, you got to get people's attention to get people in the door, and it's an extreme like sliding scale that way. You will never see Autzen Stadium as empty as the Coliseum was. I mean, even when we were god awful with Helfrich, we still had people showing up. We weren't selling it out, but we still had people showing up, right? Yeah. Um, in the Coliseum, it's and in LA, like I'm saying, it's a different story. So I'm curious to see how that sort of energy surrounding the USC football program kind of stands out because uh, right now in the immediate again we're in the exact immediate aftermath it's it's pretty damn high and for good reason like I mean you mentioned Matt Campbell that would have been a great hire for them I think but you go and get like maybe the only better name out of the big 12 instead of Matt Campbell and honestly I mean maybe you want to say Aranda like whatever he seems to have taken himself off the list in the short term uh, with his comments this week at, with Joel Klatt. But my point being, like, I'm even more worried about what might happen in the background at USC, stuff we won't even know about, where you talked a little bit about investment um, and just kind of total buy-in from USC boosters. We don't really know what we're talking about with that because we're not involved in the booster world. Um, but those are the kind of... Uh, ebbs and flows that nobody casual fans like us can't really pay attention to or we're not casual fans but you know we're not like again we're not we don't have deep roots within the usc program or anything um it's hard for us to follow that kind of stuff but that's the kind of stuff that really makes a big difference in a program especially one that's trying to get resurrected um so again like i mean let's just think about this in a linear progression right Maybe he doesn't, maybe Riley doesn't win the South next year with USC, right? But I think it's safe to put their floor a little bit higher than we would have had they got somebody else. Like, I think a bowl game is definitely like a floor for this team, maybe even better than that. Like, I would say like seven wins is, it seems like the floor for his first year, right? I could easily see him getting nine or even 10. Um, and I mean, the next year after that, you would expect improvement. Next year after that, you would expect improvement. Again, you're at you are literally in Los Angeles. Um, there were, <laughs> that appeals to recruits if you have the right guy at the helm. So There's... good for them for getting the right guy. I see people mentioning like you mentioned like other Pac-12 fans are talking about this in terms of oh Oregon gets hurt the most from this because they pull most of their recruits from California and like USC is in California, so they're going to take Oregon's good recruits. Like that's not how this works. More more top-level recruits are choosing 
like SEC schools right now than they are yeah. like USC and Oregon combined. Um, that's just how the landscape of this works. Like the teams who are really, really going to get like in trouble from this perspective, Utah, ASU, Arizona a little bit, even though they're kind of in a bad place already. UCLA, the big one, like you're going to stick around with Chip Kelly, who like actively doesn't really care about team success. Um, when your rival next door neighbor is, is bringing in pretty much the hottest name on the job market right now, that's gotta be concerning. Um, and yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it is concerning for Oregon a little bit in terms of like overall conference perception, who's better, but I think the immediate threat and maybe even the long-term threat lies more in like those smaller brands, you know, UW up North, like Cal even like, it's going to be a struggle for those teams to fight for like four-star recruits against USC in California. Um, with Again, with the right guy, and we're assuming Riley is the right guy at the helm. Um, yeah. Something else we got on this list. Uh, well, I mean, you talked about Oregon's window to be like the conference number one. It's, you know, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it in terms of perception and like, who the, what being number one even means in this conference. Uh, but um, coaching-wise, we've heard a lot of talk, and we haven't been part of the talk, about Cristobal to Miami. And, it you know, Miami fans are acting like it's a foregone conclusion and it's just a matter of time. Right. Um, <laughs> Reed, last I checked, they still haven't fired Manny Diaz yet, have they? No, no. Some people thought it would happen today, but it hasn't happened. Um, yeah. But but honestly, for me, I mean, I, and Cristobal, I almost am starting to worry more about those other jobs. I mean, I've said it before. I think that Cristobal wants to be in Oregon, um, and I would be pretty, pretty, pretty surprised if he went to Miami. But I'm a little less surprised if he goes to LSU or Oklahoma, personally. Um, and it's with LSU especially – like that job is starting to um, really tick down the candidates. Mel Tucker's off the board. Lincoln Riley's off the board. Even Billy Napier was a potential candidate who went to Florida. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if Lane Kiffin's really a fit there. So who is it? Like, and if that, if they really put the big money down and they try to you know if Cristobal becomes their guy um it's going to be a tough battle to win and the coaching coaching world is just kind of a that's how it is man it's a money world yeah uh and and coaches can say all the right things uh but ultimately I mean I can't blame and I have a you know I have a ton of pride in this Oregon program I'll I will defend it, but ultimately, if LSU wants you and they're willing to give you every single perk in the world and give you every single you know shiny toy that will help you compete for a national title, uh, that is a tough offer to turn down. Um, but you know we're, I mean, we're not you, there. You yet. may be sitting, you may be sitting there listening to this like 
Oh, that would be so stupid. There's no way LSU would actually, like, shell out an unfathomable amount of money for Mario Cristobal, right? Are you familiar with the SEC? Are you familiar how this sausage gets made every year? Like, stupid shit is the standard when it comes to hiring people and spending money. Um, so I would be I would be surprised but not shocked if he goes to LSU. I would be a little more... I think you could call me shocked if he went to Oklahoma. And also at this point, like Miami, I mean, again, we've talked a little bit about that comparison before. And uh, if you need something to reassure yourself, go watch the Pate. Just search like Josh Pate, uh, Oregon, Miami, Mario Cristobal. Um, He explains it perfectly. Like, what we really might end up getting out of this is that Oregon has deeper pockets than we thought. Uh, which is always a nice reassurance. I know it seems like kind of a stupid question to ask with how much development this campus and this football program undergoes on a yearly basis at this point, but um, I don't know, man. It's going to be hard to pry my pry Cristobal away from Oregon, um, but I will say if there's any, like, if there's a short, very short list of schools who can do it, and I think LSU might be on that list, so we'll see there. Again, I mentioned Aranda seems to be staying at Baylor for the time being, which is a little bit puzzling for me, but I guess we'll see. Matt Campbell may be still on the board. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's going to be interesting. Uh, it's We are definitely not out of the woods yet. Yeah. I mean, I just say it about LSU because, like, I mean, literally, you know, maybe it's just me being in Louisiana and stuff, but honestly, I think LSU – might be the best job in college football in terms of just explain that explain that i agree with you yeah well the big thing is i mean one they're in the sec and it's a huge brand um and then two the big thing is is unlike alabama who has auburn as a rival uh they are in a huge recruiting hotbed in louisiana and nobody competes with them as much as i love my two lane green wave i don't remember (laughs) last time they won a recruiting battle against lsu people i mean i can tell you being in in new orleans like people who grow up in new orleans are going to lsu if they're good at football yeah like nine times out of and that goes for the state Yeah, yeah and that goes for the entire state like it is a serious culture here and serious investment. Um, and not only that, but the LSU brand means so much that you pull, I mean, some guys out of California, like uh, Elias Risk, Ricks is a guy who entered the transfer portal, but he went to modern day, you know, in California, and he just wanted to go to LSU because of the culture around it and what it means and everything. Um, mm-hmm. And if you need any more confirmation of that, Les Miles and uh, Ed Orgeron won national titles at, at or went to national titles at LSU. Like mm-hmm. bad coaches <laughs> go <laughs> like win national titles at LSU. Um, and if Nick Saban hadn't gone to the NFL. W- without a shadow of a doubt he would do every single thing he's done at alabama at lsu yeah um it is an amazing job i think you can make an argument for bama after all they've done 
recently that they're maybe better. I think Georgia's a really good job, and I know you won't disagree with that. Um, but LSU is either at the top of the list and probably isn't in my opinion, or it's a top three job in the sport at worst. So, like, that's why I say it's kind of, you know, at a certain point, it's pretty hard to turn that one down. Um, I want to I wanna poke a hole in your analysis and then fill it again. Um, <laughs> Perfect. You, you mentioned LSU being in the SEC as, like, a positive for that job. A lot of more casual people might look at that and say, well, that's a negative. It's harder to win in the SEC, right? Like, isn't that why Lincoln Riley just left Oklahoma? Being in the SEC gives you more fans, gives you more money, it gives you more pull in recruiting, and it gives you a better recruiting hotbed. Um, it means your conference as a whole has more success, which means, you know, uh, and again, a lot of something a lot of people don't necessarily understand is like, when Oregon does well, the entire conference of the Pac-12 gets paid. When we go to the playoff, even when Washington went to the playoff, yeah. everybody in the Pac-12 gets paid. Um, and when you have more teams in that playoff and you have a larger share of TV revenue, it still gets distributed to the conference as a whole. Um, it's not just one program. Even though that might seem counterintuitive, that's what you sign up for when you're in a conference. Yep. It's the sole reason Notre Dame to this day is still not in a conference. Um, and it's part of the reason so again, the Pac-12 being in the SEC, died, died off recently is that they haven't gotten a team to get that yes. big paycheck for the conference. But go on. Yes. Well, yeah, a lot of times when you make these conference comparisons, you're like, oh, the Pac-12's middle class is so much better than, like, the ACCs or the Big 12s or whatever, or even the Big 10s in some years. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, well, they don't have that one team. Yeah, three. Uh, they don't have that one dominant three team. Three Cheez-It Bulls don't pay for one playoff appearance. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> I would venture to say, like, I'm assuming 30 don't pay for one playoff appearance. Um, and that's a win. I don't know if... They've had a cheese it bowl away. Point being, like, yeah, it's even if you are bad in the SEC, it is still worth it to be in the SEC. That is why Texas and Oklahoma went there in the first place. And now it feels like I'm starting to have a discussion that we already had over the summer. But essentially, yes, that I just wanted to make that clear for everybody. Um, where do we go from here? What's next on this? On this? outline here um, um well we kind of touched on recruiting i'll circle back and just put some teeth into it as someone who follows it closely long term what does this do for recruiting for oregon if assuming cristobal does stay at oregon um it's going to be a battle in california uh and ditto for arizona and nevada and washington um and if the Pac-12 keeps that talent in conference. California is a absolute legit talent source. Um, and Oregon, the, that state, along with the complementary stuff of Arizona and Washington and Nevada and the rest of the West Coast, can absolutely sustain two nationally relevant programs, uh, two national powers even, I believe. Um so there's a path there, but but the bigger thing that this conference has to plug, especially now that it's trying to, I mean, most people just assume USC and golf's everything. They're the number one and Oregon gets scraps. But if you're Oregon and you're trying to make the argument that there is going to be a South power and a North power, you really need to start 
blocking off this conference from the teams outside of the regional footprint. Um, if you do that, there's enough talent that Oregon's going to be all right. Um, mm-hmm. And but the but the big issue is specifically with guys like Justin Flo or Kayvon Thibodeau, who grow up in Southern California, um, or Mikhail Wright. Those those ones are going to be pretty tough. Not every mm-hmm. not every player in California dreams of going to Southern California, of going to USC. But a lot of the ones at Modern Day um, or in the Enlin Empire um, do so, and those are a yeah. lot of the best yeah. ones. So um, so that's tough. That's going to be tough to compete with. Um, if if USC is fully functional, um, mm-hmm. now to put some perspective on this broadly, you mentioned UCLA, um, and I thought one of the most interesting takes I heard on this was was from Carlos of No Truck Stops at Equity Brune on Twitter, um, and he was talking about it from the UCLA perspective. Um, so you know he says. Uh, Riley could absolutely be a Stoops continuity merchant, which hilarious, hilarious uh, phrasing. You, there. you want to unpack that a little bit? <laughs> basically, basically saying that that um, he's just saying there is an off chance, you know, small chance that Lincoln Riley could just be kind of a fraudulent coach and have had success at Oklahoma because the program was in such a good position after Stoops, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Saying, you know, the ship was kind of already built for him, and he just had to not screw it up, and they rolled through the Big 12. So hilarious hilarious start (laughs) there. Um, And he says, you know, USC's dysfunction could absolutely constrain his ability to coach, which is totally true. USC has been dysfunctional Mm -hmm. completely um, since Pete left. Uh, but he says, and we have evidence. We we have recent evidence, mind you, of USC having like who we now know are good coaches yes. completely fail there because of that. Uh, I mean, the phrase that comes to mind is lack of institutional control. So I guess we'll just roll with that. One thousand um, percent. But you know, Lane Kiffin, yeah, <laughs> good coach. Ed Orgeron, say what you want about you know he only had a six and two record at USC, like whatever ended up winning a national title. Uh, Steve Sarkeesian, like, just got hired at Texas. Obviously not doing great so far, but point made. Continue. Right. So he says, but in terms of who USC could hire, this is by a mile the best coast coach they could have possibly landed. And we have to react accordingly. Mm-hmm. That is com- That is just true. There, There was not a better coach out there. And honestly, outside of Riley and maybe Aranda, there wasn't one that really scared me that much. I mean, I think Campbell could have been successful there, but I'm saying, you know, 50% chance he's gone in six years, in my opinion, because that's just what coaching hires hit on, especially at USC. Um, Mm -hmm. But this one is different. But the next part of it in relation to UCLA is, is what I thought was really interesting. He says, and to that end, what a complete, effing disaster from UCLA to squander the past 13 years of USC football 
uh, to end up with three different coaches, two of whom are by record the worst in program history, just three 10-win seasons and zero conference titles. An abject disaster. That is really interesting to me, you know, that you think USC's been down, UCLA had this opportunity, they completely squandered it, right? But what my mind goes to is, of course, juxtapose that or compare that to what Oregon has done and what Oregon has built for the past 20 years now. Um, you know, going through, I mean, first off, what we did with Harrington and Dixon to kind of establish a brand, but starting with really, you know, Halloween night, 2009, we remember the story. You beat USC at home game day. You go to a national title game. You flip the Anthony Thomas. You go on a six-year run where you're one of the top five programs in the sport. You go to another national title. You win a Heisman. Um, and now you get Cristobal, you start recruiting well, you get KT, all this stuff. Well, well, USC has been down, and all these programs in the Pac-12 want to say Oregon's done for because USC is back on top. And look, it's going to be a fight, yes, but this is what this Oregon program has been building towards for 20 years. Um is not only to say, hey, well, well, USC's down, maybe we can get a shot at this thing, but look, man, we had to put together the seasons and the building blocks in that time to actually get to a point where when USC does eventually get it right, because they are going to, we always knew that they would at some point, we hoped we could squeeze another bad hire out of them and to push the mm-hmm. rock down the road five more years, um, but the goal is to compete with them. Um, whether you dominate them or not, at least be to the point where, you know, in an, in a year here and there, Oregon can steal a title and get to a playoff, and they can sustain that. Um, yeah. And maybe USC dips again down the road. I mean, look at what Florida State was to Clemson, um, or I guess what Clemson was to Florida State in the early 2010s. Or even mm-hmm. look at what just happened yesterday with Michigan beating Ohio State and now Michigan is about to you know possibly get in a playoff Mm -hmm. and have you know maybe a slim chance but a chance at a title I mean they're going to be a two seed Um, being a conference number two isn't a death sentence if it is that Um, but it's about competing as much as you possibly can for that and getting this Oregon program to a to a point where it can compete with a USC, even if it is, you know, um, maxed out or whatever that is. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, yeah, we, we got to be honest, like USC has a higher ceiling than Oregon as a program. Right. Period. Right. I mean, because USC has one of the highest ceilings in the country. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we know the deal with Oregon. Oregon hasn't won a national title. Um and that's obviously the goal. I think it's, but, but I mean, how much better of a position is Oregon in right now than we would have been, or, you know, than we were in the mid 2000s, one even, or than we um, would have been if we, you know, fucked around for the past 15 years like UCLA did or whoever else. Um, this is, 
why all those little steps and winning a Heisman and building the brand and all that stuff is so important for sustained success. Um, Mm -hmm. and now it's, it's go time. You know, I think that, uh, for me, when you look at immediate goals for Oregon, it's like, I, we kind of mentioned it. How long does the USC rebuild take? Let's say it takes two years. Well, Oregon has a chance to peak over these next two years. You know, it's get Ty Thompson in next year, see what you can do in that Georgia game. And then the expectations have to ramp up real fast. If you want to compete with USC on the trail, you probably at Oregon want to make a playoff in the next two years. Like that's a very important goal, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. We went into 2019 and 20 and 2021 like, oh, hey, man, it would be nice to make a playoff. Um, That'd be cool, you know, and and some fans obviously are screaming right now that that's not their approach. But um, but I think it was our approach and and for good reason, ultimately. Uh, But that stuff's got to change fast because. I mean, this hire changes everything, man. And um, and if you want to win a national title at Oregon, like I know all these fans do and Phil Knight does and all of that these next two years before USC fully maximizes are, I mean, either one, you win it in those two years, which that's, that's got to start to be in the vocabulary of Oregon fans, uh, at least by 2023 in my mind, because it's like that 2021 class that Oregon brought in from a recruiting perspective, that's supposed to be the class, right? Ty Thompson, Troy Mm -hmm. Franklin, Dante. That's the one that, Look, a lot of good classes are recruited across the country. It's not a failure if you don't win it, but, like, that's a class that you take that you're, like, that's a damn good class, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And even and so, you know, you look at, like, 2022, it's in part about getting the supplemental pieces to complement that class. Like, a guy like Kelvin Banks, it's like, we need another really good offensive lineman for that title run. Kelvin Banks, that's a guy who can play as a sophomore in 2023. Um, or Tedaroa McMillan, that's a guy who can play. The corners, Jaleel Tucker and Leo Florence, one of those is going to play. Some of those linebackers can play. But 2021's the, like, that's the junior class that is going to have to be able to, we hope, is going to be able to compete for it. So, one, it's like 2023, try to win that thing but at least you have to get a foothold if you're Oregon that says, okay, yeah, USC can talk about tradition in California and all of that stuff, but we just went to a playoff. We're actually doing it. And Cristobal actually is building this thing and we competed with this team in a playoff game or we won mm-hmm. a playoff game and we competed in a national title game. Um, Cause otherwise this thing can go, uh, you know, it, it can go pretty you can fall it's off pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we mentioned this a little bit. We've been spending a lot of time talking about this in terms of, like, upside for USC, in terms of their best-case scenario. And, again, we, we talked about it a little bit, but there is a worst-case scenario here for USC where Lincoln Riley doesn't make it through a few years, and we're kind of right back where we were at the start of, like, this season, maybe. I mean, obviously, it depends what Oregon does in that time as well, but... I do want to emphasize that, like, it's really, really easy to get sucked into the 
belief that Oregon is like the best job in the Pac-12 and that Oregon is the best like long-term like program in the Pac-12. Sure, you might be able to say that about the last 10 years, mm-hmm. something like that. 15 years maybe. Um but I mean once you even if you dip back into the 2000s, early 2000s like USC is USC. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned 2009 because we had to get over that hump of beating USC in a big game. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously there's more chances for that now with Pac-12 title games and such. But, like, it's, you know, again, not only is USC's ceiling higher and than Oregon's, but their floor is higher, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> a floor is a floor, and you're going to call a team bad if they have four wins or two wins, but... I mean, <laughs> this thing can go off the tracks pretty quickly if Mario leaves and if we can't replace him with the right guy. Right. Um, as we zoom back in a little bit towards this team and Mario and his program right now, there is something that's come up while we've been recording this very long podcast that I want to touch on, is that uh, Akron is really interested in hiring Joe Moorhead. Now, that might seem stupid, to again a lot of fans but like oh jesus that's horrible <laughs> it's a realistic possibility um moorhead has spent time in akron before i'm reading jared denny's article right now on scoop duck uh let's see spent Ooh, five know. years there working as assistant at akron so it's kind of how he came up um organs buy or moorhead's buyout um is it doesn't say in this article, but uh, 25%. That's what it is. He would owe the university 25% if he were to leave the school before February of 2022, unless he did so to become an NFL head coach, NFL play caller, or an FBS head coach, which for those not familiar, yes, Akron is in the FBS. It is in the Mac. And yes, they do play on Tuesday nights to pay the bills. Um, I'd be interested to see if, you know, I'm interested to listen to shows like Split Zone Duo to try to get some perspective on, like, what Akron can offer in terms of money. But again, this is a moment where, like, Oregon's going to have to pony up. You know, we knew this was going to happen sooner rather than later in terms of Moorhead getting poached to be a head coach somewhere. But, I mean, it would be a blow to lose him this early into his tenure. Um especially to a place like Akron. Yeah. <laughs> I got no beef with Akron, but like, yep. damn, bro, that that would be really, that would be a tough pill to swallow. So again, maybe a chance for Oregon to pony up and see what they're made of in terms of money, in terms of keeping guys around. But uh, this, this could turn into a very painful offseason very quickly, unfortunately. I'm not expecting that to happen. Again, I'm not, of course, I'm not wishing that to happen. We just got to set reasonable expectations for ourselves. And we know how hard that can be. But, I mean, it's – yeah, I mean, it's just like for Oregon, you know, um, people might call it hypocritical because I've been a big preacher of patience for a while because I think that Oregon's just been on the right track steadily and I just wasn't that threatened by this USC opening. Because I just didn't think they'd get Lincoln Riley, and I thought I, I wasn't that scared of a Matt Campbell. Um, mm-hmm. But now, man, it, like it is time. Like it's like you you really want to get your 
you know, stuff together here. Um, you want, you want, uh, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever things in the organization you need to fix, whether that's, you know, as simple as, you know, you need more strength and conditioning assistance, you need better nutrition, or you just need to make, you know, new position coach hires. If you need to replace your coordinator because he leaves for a new job, like the margin for error is slim. If you think about what we said and, and having two years kind of where Oregon is more or less in this kind of front runner position of the Pac-12, you better try to maximize on those two years. You don't really, there's no more like Mulligan, like, oh, hey, 2022, oh, we didn't really have a good OC, it turned out. Um, we were, oh, we were installing a new system. Too bad. We, you know, we went 10 and 2 that year, 9 and 3. We'll get them next time, I guess. That is doesn't really <laughs> exist anymore. It was, you know, you played that game with Arroyo at first because he was a holdover and you didn't want to put everyone on that team through another coaching change. Um and, it, and it's Mario's second year, and, and I thought that was fine. And then you bring in the new quarterback with, with A.B. because you missed on a few cycles early, and your, your QBs are a little too young. I, I'm willing to forgive that. I, I, I think it takes longer to build college football programs than people realize, but these next two years are big time. Um, there isn't – a room for mistakes i mean even stuff like the clock management and punting and stuff it's like that stuff is cute when you're learning how to be a coach but ultimately at some point we got to get over it um because there isn't any more like we're happy to be here act uh yeah going forward it feels like uh it just got the the tone gets a lot more serious i think after this um but it is worth saying, exactly. you, you mentioned it for a second, and I do want to circle back on it because I don't think we did it quite enough justice, was can Lincoln Riley fail uh, or can this thing go sideways with USC? It, yeah, it totally can. Co- good coaching hires, seemingly home run hires, fail all the time in the sport. They, they do. Um, one's as proven as this at a place with as high a ceiling as USC Maybe not, but I mean, even look at a Dan Mullen was a really popular hire when he was picked at Florida, and that thing totally crashed and burned. Um, look at what Sark's doing at Texas. Yeah. Look at what Sark did at USC and Kiffin did at USC. Um, well, you know, it could go the other way where Riley goes to the NFL. Um, but even so, I mean, let's let's not treat Lincoln Riley as a god. Uh, he's not Nick Saban. I mean, it, it, you know, we do we, – we've watched Oklahoma the past few years. Um, they didn't win every single game every year. I mean, they have lost games to, like, Kansas State. Uh, I don't think that – I think that, you know, I mean, it's classic USC, and people love to hype that program up even when they're bad. Even when they have Clay Helton as coach, people are picking him to make playoffs and stuff. <laughs> so, of course, the hype's going to turn up to 100. But it's not like I'm saying... There's a reason for it. USC is... It's not like I'm saying USC is going to win a national title in the next four years, though. Um, necessarily. I mean, they could. But... <laughs> only one only one team can win the conference each year. Right. Yeah. Only one champion can emerge. 
and there's a higher percent chance now of that being USC. 100%. 100%. That's true. Yeah. Sweet. Um, all right. I think we've beaten Lincoln Riley to death by now. Um, unless you got any final thoughts on this situation, but, uh, you want to take a look at, well, you know what? We can look at conference championship weekend on Tuesday. It's, <laughs> I think we've done this justice so far. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> we can look at conference championship weekend Tuesday. Uh, and I think we can probably just wrap it up here unless there's anything else you've got. Be grateful for what you have. <laughs> That's all I will say. Be grateful for what you have and what you have had. Um, and don't get me wrong. It's not doom and gloom. Like, we're <laughs> we're not rescinding our, like, Oregon fandom anytime soon. Uh, we will always be around. So there's, I guess, nothing to worry about there. But, uh, again, like you said, this is college football. Stuff can change really quickly. Not always for the better for your program. Yeah. Um, especially when you are kind of on that maybe second tier overall of programs like Oregon is, uh, you know, us, the USC's and LSU's of the world are playing a slightly different game than we are like it or not. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just see what happens though. You know, I'm excited for it still. Don't get me wrong. I mean, talk to me tomorrow and my tone will have changed even less than it did like before this episode. So, uh, yeah, man. Either way, again, as a Pac-12 football fan in general, it's exciting. And as an Oregon fan, it's still exciting to see your conference do something right for once. Um, Overall, something I don't think we mentioned, but I want to hit very quickly before we end this episode. Yes, this is a good thing for the Pac-12 overall. And uh, yes, those things matter when we talk about this sport, especially in this conference. In general, I do think the tide is turning with the Pac-12. It's really easy to point out the terrible things about this conference. We talk about them pretty much every week. Um, But there are some good things happening. And again, it's always, you know, if you can win the Pac-12, that's great. If you can win the Pac-12 when it's even better, that's only better for you. So just think about it that way, I guess. Yeah, and it it could turn into a place where... Oregon doesn't need the validation of doing of either going undefeated or doing something else out of conference that's really impressive to make a playoff. So that you know that's a positive if yeah. your conference has some respect and you actually can get a big win in there. It's different different yeah. than people had maybe planned on, but there's it is good to have more attention for sure. Yeah. Yep. All right, that just about does it for us. Um, check out whatever else. Reed, do you know what, what you will be writing on Scoop Talk this week or no? Um, I'm not sure, honestly. We're just churning out a ton of stuff uh, after the big visit weekend, so that's that's what's going on right now. Um, but I'm, I can assure you, whatever it is that me or J-Hop or Jonathan or Jared Denny or Joel Gunderson is writing over there or whoever else uh, – there will be content on scoop tuck <laughs> and if not yes, by us yes. by the mini posters there's always there's always a nugget over there so yeah check it out for sure yeah um especially in times like these this is where your subscription really pays off is uh in in times of great potential turmoil and upheaval <laughs> um if you want to know what happens first it's it's usually your best bet to be on scoop tuck um all right enough of that uh 
Daily Emerald will be putting out stuff this week. I don't think I'm going to write anything because I'm swamped with actual school, unfortunately. But uh, we'll see what happens. Follow us on Twitter at DucksPod. You can submit questions there. Give us advice, talking points, um, all that other stuff. Both our Twitter handles are in there. We release all our stuff there, too. So go check that out. Um, Five-star reviews are great. If you've made it through to this point, like round of applause for you like that's that's pretty impressive i i I can't see the total because of the break i can't see the total like time we're at right now but it's definitely over two hours so we're probably close to that so thanks a lot um go ducks go ducks